Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, uh, here in New York uh, after a quick trip to Vegas that had uh, mixed results. I'll get to in a minute. Um, hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode when I was in Vegas and I had a chance to sit out the podcast and just enjoy our friends uh Danny and Derek doing their thing, which I thought was a really fun episode. Make sure you check that out if you haven't. But today, I'm really, really excited because we have uh, a guest coming on right now that you guys have been clamoring for. He is one of the most popular coaches on TPE and one of the most dynamic and interesting people in the poker world. Please welcome the assassinato himself. Alex Fitzgerald is on the program. Hey, Alex, how's it going? Hey, Clayton. Happy to be here. Yeah, so we're both in New York, but we still couldn't manage to get it together today, could we? We had to do a Skype call anyway. Uh, yeah, that's my fault. That's not your fault. Just a <laughs> lot a, a lot going on right now, so it's hard to find the time to... Well, and with the trains in New York, you never know how long it's going to take, right? So mm-hmm. you, you want to do an hour podcast, and it ends up being four hours. But yeah, that was, that was completely on me. <laughs> I wasn't going to call you out on it, but uh, yeah, it's your <laughs> fault. <laughs> so uh you got a lot going on what is going on with you these days i'm uh I, i'm still coaching quite a bit i uh you know a lot of it is uh just writing down different concepts and trying to get it right and then coaching and staging at, at some point in the next year i think i'm going to come back and play a lot more poker i'm playing online right now but maybe play some live the I actually love live poker quite a bit, but the problem is it's so hard to get hands in. So you got to really justify it and not so much financially, but is this going to be meaningful to you? Is this going to be fun uh, to head out to Atlantic city and stuff like that? So I uh, just been doing the coaching, trying to pay bills, take care of the family, and then also set myself up to play perhaps a little bit more in Vegas for the WSOP Perhaps more of these Atlantic City tournaments, Philadelphia tournaments, Baltimore, uh, Montreal, uh, anything that's, you know, the Port Authority tour, whatever, uh, <laughs> whatever, uh, I'm the cheapest person you'll find when it comes to this stuff, right? It's a, well, I, mean, I, I take a Greyhound to those places because it costs 20 bucks and I, I used to do my taxes and at the end of the year I go, I spent 25,000 on travel and I only made, 50,000 on the tour this year maybe even some years you're just negative right and that 25,000 is just like insult to injury sure yeah Yeah. for those who don't know uh the port authority is the name of the bus terminal here in new york so when he says the port authority tour he means any place you can get to on a greyhound from new york city (laughs) yes sir yes sir that in las vegas and you only do las vegas during the series because that's when everybody shows up to make their claim and you can actually get in there and uh cause some damage 
Yeah, yeah. The listeners know I'm that guy that like waits on pins and needles for the schedule to come out, and right away I start looking at the tournaments and how they change the World Series of Poker every year and what 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 the differences are going to be, and I start making my schedule like the day the schedule comes out because you know as far as live poker goes it is the best are you the same have you had a chance to look at it yet do you get excited like i do i get excited but uh it's so strange i'm obviously very lucky in the fact that i I get to analyze poker for a living that's a tremendous opportunity because you get to the cool thing about poker is if you were a soccer player you have to pick when you're when your career as a player ends and when your career as a manager begins or a coach uh, or an analyst or whatever it is in poker, you get to go between roles and that's really fun because seeing the bird's eye view through the analytics and coaching and everything like that actually helps you become a better player and playing helps you be a better coach and vice versa. The thing is I've just been focusing on coaching so much for the last year or two just because well, you got to strike while the iron's hot. And there was also some stuff going on with my family that I was taking care of. And it, it financial stabil- stability became a bigger deal. But, yeah, I get just as excited. And uh, it, it, there's nothing worse than being in Vegas and not having a friend like you, Clayton, where it's like, what am I supposed to be playing today? You tell me. Well, let me tell you. There's five <laughs> tournaments going on. It, you always need that friend. Usually Carlos Welch. Carlos knows yeah. everything that's yeah. going on in town. Yeah. He's got it down. It's pretty much, you know, Carlos. Uh, when I was in Vegas, Carlos is the man at sleeping on the floor and telling me where I'm supposed to be that day. And <laughs> it, he picks the best ones. It's like, go to Planet Hot. He's like... Uh, it's it's almost like uh, Yoda, you know, going to Planet Hollywood. There's easy money there, and then I go there, <laughs> and sure enough, on that planetary system, there is some easy money. Absolutely. It, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Carlos, you know, he's been a guest on this and probably every other po- podcast that's poker related uh, a number of times, and uh, yeah, he is definitely known for doing his research, knowing who's going to be where. I would think he would tell you to go to one location then make sure that he was somewhere else <laughs> <laughs> yeah he kind of does that it's like you should be playing at the venetian oh, man i don't want to play at the venetian where are you playing i want to make some money today i don't want to be sitting around with all these kids staring at me with their hoodies and their gelled hair and their big headphones in their 45 second time banks i got better stuff to do today yeah for sure for sure. Yeah, we love Carlos, too. Um, yeah, so what I'll do is I'll just go through the schedule and figure out what I what I want to play. And uh, then if I, if I get a clue that a lot of uh, top players are planning to play the same thing that I was thinking about playing, I will sometimes change change my mind. But even then, I find that even like in a, some huge tournament that everybody seems to think they want to play, that you – it's still the luck of the draw. What kind of table I end up being no, at. In other words, you know, one amazing player isn't going to ruin my table if everybody else is average. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. yeah, but yeah, I'm just getting excited. Even just now talking about it, I'm getting excited. Um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I did have a kind of a, a, a mixed bag last week. I, I got to do some comedy at this uh, charity event that Daniel Negranu put together for uh, St. Jude's. Oh, actually, far out. Yeah, cool. actually, uh, Matt Stout was one of the organizers, and he invited me to perform. 
And, you know, that was kind of a life-changing experience, just, you know, in between the comedy uh, sets, they had, you know, videos of what goes on at the hospital and how children survive cancer and like all the research they're doing to try to make sure that no child ever gets cancer. And, you know, just kind of like big picture stuff that make you say, man, I'm never going to be upset about anything ever again in my life. Right. And yes, then sir. two days later, that theory gets tested. When <laughs> I, <laughs> I, go, I go out and play and when I come home, my hotel room has been burglarized. So, oh, no. Yeah, and I was Sorry. like, you know, you know, Clayton, you just told yourself two days ago that you're never going to get upset about anything ever again. And now here's something to be upset about. I mean, they got my laptop. They got my oh, passport. No. They got a oh, bunch of stuff. God. You know, It's like, just leave the passport. Save me the paperwork. You I can know. have the laptop. That is brutal. You're not going to oh. fly anywhere with my picture. Yeah, come on, like, <laughs> come on now. Yeah, is it like anyone's really going to forge you. Well, I guess they could. But that, from what I've heard, that takes a lot of technology. But, no, I'm right with you there. It's it's hard to keep a perspective because you're only with yourself every day. So you're competing against yourself. And yeah, when you, when your uh, hotel room gets burglarized, that's a pretty bad day, regardless of what other people are going through. It's hard to keep perspective on that. If you kept any perspective, period, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. I felt pretty proud of myself because, um, you know, one thing I was upset about at first was I had just bought this brand new, winter coat because i'm kind of like carlos i like a bargain i like to buy my winter coat at the end of winter smart smart <laughs> and uh you know i i had to take the coat to get from my apartment to the airport but i probably didn't need that winter coat oh, in vegas no. you know and then i come home and you know i i get home from vegas and it's still a little bit cold i need to go buy a new winter coat but then you know i started thinking about it and i you know what helps me sleep now at night is just thinking that maybe the person who burglarized my room was homeless and it's been a little chilly in Vegas. It even snowed last week one day. So maybe this guy, he just needed a coat and, and it, you know, I try to look at it like, well, maybe I just, uh, I donated a coat to the homeless. <laughs> uh, uh, that is uh, that's a good one. I had a very rude comment go through my head, but I'm not going to say it, which is terrible <laughs> podcasting, but I'm trying to be better. It was a, but no, that's a, that's a very good. Not anything about you, but I was thinking, you are a saint because what I would be hoping for that person is much different than what you were hoping. Yeah, you, so you're good not, for you. Yeah. yeah, you're not hoping that he can stay warm, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, you're you're much better at that than I am. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I, I'm I'm saying that I'm trying to think that way, and not I hope that mf or you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's just hard. Uh, but there are worse crimes to be a victim of. I keep thinking about that too. You know, so uh, whatever, uh, whatever. Yeah. They got they got my things. It's just things, you know. Um, but yeah, I want to go back to something you were saying before about teaching and coaching and and helping people um, with their poker because that's something I've always enjoyed too. I I've done some poker coaching. Um, I'm not at the level of an you know, Alex Fitzgerald as a coach or anything like that. Um, but just everything that I've ever been good at in my life, I've always kind of enjoyed helping other people learn how to do it. Like, for example, in college, um, I majored in music and theater. And uh, some of the 
some of the other some of my classmates didn't have the same music theory background that I had. My father was a musician, and I started learning all about music when I was just a boy. So, nice. and a lot of them were like failing music theory class because it's really hard to master. Uh, and you know, and my school was pretty tough on that stuff. And I said, you know, if you ever want some extra tutoring, I won't charge you. And I used to just kind of enjoy helping people get it because, like, when you kind of see a light bulb go off in another person's head. But uh-huh. even beyond that, and you could tell me if, if poker uh, is the same for you, but for me, helping other people learn about music theory actually strengthened my relationship with music theory, where I, oh, I yeah. understood it better and I loved it more. There's a, there's a gentleman, uh, Richard Feynman, uh, Dr. Richard Feynman, who uh, I think he was one of the guys who worked on... Uh, the atom bomb and if you ever read his books this is a guy who could like teach himself japanese in a matter of weeks he played the drums he was a he was a space cadet uh, before there were space cadets and one of the things he said was if you want to be great at something you got to teach it that's just the thing it is and this is a guy who is uh one of the brightest scientists of our lot of this generation he was saying you do have to teach and i didn't understand that i read Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, when I was 21, a great book, if anybody ever wants to check it out. And I didn't really get that. And then uh, I started poker coaching just because uh, the swings in tournament poker are tremendous. And uh, if you're supporting anybody on top of that, it, it can get very stressful very quickly. So having some money coming in for the groceries and whatnot is a great assistance. But yeah, I felt like you felt as I got into it, which was, it's pretty fun to help Granny 3-bet. It's really <laughs> fun. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's pretty cool to get the email. I never made a final table before. I took fourth last night. I just made $3,300. And it, it feels great because, you know, the 100 they paid you or whatever, they just got paid back 33 times back. And you feel this has got to be the most ethical business on earth. Right. And then it, I'm sitting here, a guy who barely graduated high school, just got a hundred dollars in an hour. I'm feeling awesome. Right. That's uh, you got to be an actuary or something to make that kind of money. <laughs> right. And, uh, right. So it was uh, to me, it seemed to really win win. And then I got kind of addicted to coaching better because I'm really into uh, just following sports and everything. And I, I, I started thinking well, Bill Belichick is uh, an amazing person to everyone in the United States for what he's done with the New England Patriots. Why are there not poker coaches who aspire to be at that level? So I started studying what those guys did, and uh, I actually found the Navy SEALs and Bill Belichick do the exact same thing, which is they uh, they have found that people in the heat of the moment cannot remember more than three things. Uh, it, the Navy SEALs talk about, and it, a lot of these guys are, you know, multilingual bodybuilding demolitions experts. So if they can't remember three things at a time, I don't know who can. And it was really fun to simplify poker more and more and more and get it to very like crucial questions and to beat it into people's heads. And it, it's very thrilling to if you have a good year in poker, you could be a good poker player. Or you could be running hot. But if you got 200 guys winning, you know you're right. And then when you get back into the game, the really good thing for me is 
It does not matter how jet lagged I am now. It does not matter how tired I am. It does not matter what is going on in my life. I can hear my voice, how I talk to poker players in those lessons. So I will not make the same mistakes because what I'm thinking is you hypocrite, you tell them not to do this. Why would you do that? So that's really helped my professional career. I, I've only gotten to play like five live tournaments a year for the past three years, but I was lucky enough in uh, the ass end of 2016, uh, December, I showed up for WPT Prague and obviously that's quite a bit of jet lag. That's about nine hours. And uh, I final tabled the tournament even with the jet lag because I, I could just hear my sessions with my students in my head and all the fundamentals that we had worked on. The more you teach it, the more it becomes a part of you. So it, be, it really feels like the best business in the world. You're helping other people. They're making more money than what you, they paid you. And if they're not making more money than what they paid you, you're not doing a good enough job. They're making more money than they paid. You're making money. You're becoming a better poker player. I honestly feel like it's the American dream. I cannot imagine a luckier person than myself. That's a great attitude to have. And, you know, I think you're so right because I also uh, work with comedians from time to time. You know, I'm a professional stand-up comedian, and I'll also take time with some of the up-and-coming, hungry, young comedians that want to get better. And I'll, I'll look at their stuff with them, and I'll give them advice, and I'll, I'll do basically coaching with them. Nice. It's, a, it's a little hard to teach comedy because, in a sense, there are no rules but uh -huh. but there also are you know generally speaking if you do this it's probably a mistake and if you do uh -huh. that it's it's probably a mistake that kind of thing uh -huh. um but yeah i feel like it, it helps me avoid some of the pitfalls that other guys that have been around for a while might fall into because they're not having that constant reinforcement of the basics which when you're working with someone that's at the beginning you have to start with the basics and that just reinforces my fundamentals um, in that way, and likewise, doing this podcast, you know, I get to talk poker with people at all different levels. Um, so sometimes I'm talking to someone that's, you know, obviously a really accomplished player, coach, author like yourself. And then other times, you know, I'm getting emails from people that are like, well, you guys keep talking about three bets. What is that? And, and <laughs> you, know, you know, it's kind of nice. Like I get to see all per, uh, all perspectives and understand that not everyone is at at the same point in his or her relationship with this game that I love as I am. So I'm kind of having my own love affair with poker for the last 20 years. But there are other people that might just like be on their honeymoon. And that's so I, you know, I need to respect that too. Um, I wanted to well, ask you about your books, if that's all right, unless you wanted to say something else about that. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Obviously, if I had hiked my ass down to where you lived... And uh, you can see me when I was about to talk, but that's my fault. So sorry for me uh, talking oh, yeah. over you. But uh, uh, the thing I was going to say is it's really cool you have that perspective. I Because I uh, – well, I remember – what was his name? Dat Fan, the comic? Sure. I, yeah, he – when he won last comic standing, I remember that dude showing his analytics – during his set he was saying like "Ooh, there was a lull here for 45 seconds what did i do during that punchline and he was watching the tape and i was watching um you know i i don't know how i feel about his comedy or whatever but i was just like i love this dude i love how he's hustling for it right if you've got that attitude with comedy man poker uh i just want you to know poker is 
the greatest thing about poker is like you and me can watch Kobe do a jump shot. We're never going to have Kobe's jump shot, but you can watch a poker hand and you can take that play if you work hard enough. That's really cool that you've developed that love for deliberate practice in your uh, day job and you're taking it to poker. You're not just keeping it in uh, one focus. That'll bounce back and forth and help you out. So sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just thought that was really cool. And I <laughs> I wanted to rant a little bit about it. What was the, the question you were going to ask? Yeah, me? no. Hey, anytime you want to interrupt me to give me a compliment, I accept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, I wanted to ask you, actually, you, uh, well, first off, I want to say um, that fan is actually a friend of mine. And oh, cool. uh, yeah, I'm a fan of his too. And I, I really respect his approach. Like some people think, oh, well, you're not really an artist if you're just trying to be analytical. But I think... You know, with comedy, there is a lot of uh, analysis that needs to happen in order to really get good at it. But what I wanted to bring up was actually you got there with the Kobe thing. Like, do you really think there's no such thing as poker talent? Because you have a book and its title is <laughs> The Myth of Poker Talent, Why Anyone Can Be a Great Poker Player. I know you have a newer book as well, but I want to ask you about this one because I – I'm not convinced that talent doesn't exist in this game. Is that mm -hmm. is that just a, a marketing ploy to have a title that kind of grabs <laughs> attention? Or do you really uh, think that? Well, uh, here's the thing. When you walk into a bookstore, I want you to remember this the next time you guys walk into a bookstore. Every book you walk past is a year of someone's life. So when you walk past the bookcase, you just walked past 380 years of some people's lives. And if that title didn't catch you, you didn't grab it. You didn't care. You couldn't be bothered. And by the way, that's not your fault. That's how life is. People need to be grabbed. So I picked that title so you would grab that book. Now here's the thing. Does poker talent exist? Absa, absa-effing-lutely, <laughs> right? There is, uh, uh, there is, I don't know what pros I'm allowed to talk about or whatever, but every time I, you know, you can watch, just watch Phil Ivey back in his prime. Oh my Lord, the guy five betting with nothing. Or you watch like Phil Board or Cal 42688. I could bring up a hundred names of guys that just have uncanny reads. But the fact is most poker professionals, I would say about 99% of them, are working class pros. It's a whole lot of the basics. It's a whole lot of opening when people aren't going to three bet you. It's three betting a guy who opens too much, getting him to call with too many hands and getting him to fold on the flop. It's a whole lot of having a reason to see bet and knowing when the guy's all over the board and just checking and giving up. It's a whole lot of, uh, if you are going to defend from a big blind, you've got to have a plan to check raise or something, right? It's a whole lot of, working class poker things in my opinion and i wanted people to know twofold one you can become a competent poker pro i have never been more than a competent poker pro i i work harder than most other people uh that's just because i have crazy anxiety so it feels better to work than it does to sit around doing nothing that has nothing to do with my discipline but uh you can be a competent poker pro just like me if you work hard. That's it. All you have to do is study and you have to get it to the point where somebody could wake you up in the middle of the night, scream a situation at you, and you would have the answer in five to ten seconds. And all that takes is hard work. It takes a lot of hard work. And I said that in the book at the beginning, which was like, you uh, 
everybody who told you that 10,000 hour rule, you know, 10,000 hours to true mastery. There's a lot of people driving in Queens that have been driving for 10,000 hours and they still don't know how a blinker works. So <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't mean anything. Right. And the second thing I wanted to say, uh, the second thing I wanted to say was uh, also you shouldn't be intimidated by poker pros. Most of these guys are just the average working guy in poker. You know, a lot of the basics. He doesn't want to do a double barrel or a triple barrel either. He hopes you don't take it there. But I can teach you how to take it there. And most of the time he's got, like you said at the beginning, there's one good player at the table. That doesn't really bother you much. Well, you're somebody who studies poker. And even you, all of us, I have to do this too. When there's a good player at the table, I just leave him alone. If there's seven other guys, you can be that guy that the pro leaves alone if you just work hard and study. But yeah, uh, am I six bet bluffing uh, correctly? It, there are guys that can look at you and know if you have it. I've played with them. That happens. There is a, I had a guy look at me one time and call me with fourth pair when I bet the farm on the river. The line made perfect sense and all of that. The guy just, uh, I either got a physical tell or he just picked up on it somehow. Those guys exist, and I've watched that guy long enough to know he's usually right when he does that, so I don't think he's haplessly calling Poker talent does exist. It's just not where you look for it. It most of the time these are just working pros that you can emulate. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I really like your uh, Kobe Bryant analogy because, yeah, unlike with basketball, we actually can emulate these other people and and figure some things out. Uh, what's it like writing a book? You've written a few books now. Uh, I think you've written two books and then you co-authored a third. Is that right? Yeah, I uh, uh, I co-authored, I self-published one. Uh, a buddy of mine, uh, it, it was a guy I used to back with in uh, w when I was in Europe, and he, he's just one of the smartest guys I know when it comes to backing and how much money you need and wh what investments are good, what investments are not good. And uh, he had a bunch of research, but he wanted me to punch it up a little bit. So I wrote some smaller sections about staking in that. That was sharp staking. Uh, I wrote exploitative play and live poker by myself, uh, the myth of poker talent by myself. I, yeah. And I co-authored, uh, uh, I, I was also in some compilations and stuff like that. So uh, what's it like? Was that the question? To yeah. Just that? kind of, you know, what's the process? You know, I think a lot of people, that have a lot of knowledge about a subject might think, oh, I should write a book someday. Um, you know, maybe kind of describe your process for for going from the idea of, hey, I could write a book about poker to actually being one of the few people that follows through and ends up with a book on the shelf. How, like, how does that how does that happen? Sure. Uh, well, I'm going to try to not filter my answer at all, because when I was trying to be a writer, I got fed a lot of crap. <laughs> uh, about what, what a writing process is. Uh, I'll tell you what works for me. I go into my office, I close the door, I turn on death metal, I drink a ton of coffee, <laughs> and I write as fast as possible. Because here's the thing. Uh, if you are writing and editing, you're going between the two halves of your brain. Editing is, editing is the analytical part of your brain. Uh, writing is the creative part of your brain. So if you keep going back and forth, 
you're just going to exhaust yourself really quick. And that's how you get to 800 words. And you go, how the hell do these people write so much? I can write 10,000 words in a day. Doesn't mean those 10,000 words are good. It's just, uh, so this is what happened with those books. Uh, the myth of poker talent was a little different because that was just years and years of work of just analysis and, I wonder if this play works. Let's do an EV calc for that and stuff like that. So that book kind of fell into my lap. I just wanted, uh, I wanted some publisher to pick it up and it was pretty much done because it was all stuff I wanted my students to know anyway. So I was allowed to write in a compilation and I just made sure I nailed that audition really well. And uh, that was kind of from my same playbook. And then the myth of poker talent was my total online poker playbook. And then exploitative play in live poker was the way I dreamed of that book was you got me a couple beers deep at a bar and you said, my dream is to be a poker player. And I took pity on you. And I said, here, listen, this is what you got to do. That was how I dreamed of that book. Because one thing about poker players is much like politicians, they always want to sound like the smartest guy in the room. The problem is with coaching, usually the more you dumb it down, the better a coach you are. If you get them 80 to 90% of the way there, you've done an amazing job. And that last 10% is going to take them 10 years to figure out anyway. But your job, mostly your job when somebody buys a poker book and it's the second or third poker book they bought is to get them to 80 to 90%. So with exploitative play in live poker, I just sat here, drank as much coffee as possible, rode as fast as possible, turned on music loud enough to stop me from doubting myself and overthinking, never let myself stop writing. And then when it was done, I triumphantly sent it to my publisher. They said, what is this? Rewrite it. Half of this is crap. And I went, okay, you're right. I looked at it and I went, wow, this really is. And then I cut that half. I wrote more. And it's kind of like discovering a fossil is what I think Stephen King put it as. You just, you start with, what did Anne Lamar call it? The, fir the first, or Ernest Hemingway, I think, was the one who said, like, the first draft of anything is uh, crap, right? It, it, although he didn't say crap, right? He said the first draft of anything is terrible. So you take your first draft. And you got to be really judicious. Uh, now you turn on that analytical hat. You cut as much as possible. If you read it and it's not that interesting to you, you're the one who wrote it. It's If it's not interesting to you, it sure as hell is not going to be as interesting to anyone else. If you read five sentences and you think you could get it down to two, cut that, right? And the truth is I'm not that good of a writer, but because I cut a lot of fat, like exploitative play in live poker has, uh, I think, 80 reviews now. And I think the average score is 4.7. And if you read that book, I am not writing that well as a pure writer in that book. Sentence structure could be better. Paragraph structure could be better. But since so much of the fat is trimmed and because there's so many times five sentences is compounded into one, it becomes memorable. It becomes fun. It becomes snappy to the reader and people enjoy it. And more importantly, it's memorable, which you need at the poker table, because when the adrenaline starts flowing, you're not going to remember something that's very convoluted. That that more or less is my process. 
Well, it's great. Uh, it, it really uh, it strikes me how similar that is to my process of developing stand up. You know, people ask me all the time, "How hard is it to come up with material?" It's easy to come up with material. It's hard to <laughs> it's hard to come up with anything that's actually useful. Right. Well, it, <laughs> it's about cutting, Jerry, editing. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but isn't that Jerry Seinfeld's thing, which was I write. His whole thing was he wrote jokes every single day and 90% of them were garbage. But at the end of the year, he just looked like a genius, right? Because he was writing more than everybody else. And he kept the 10% that he workshopped really well and went really well. Wasn't that his thing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, to me, that's the process that, that all great comedians have to go through is like you have an idea, you try it out. It's no good. You try it again, it's still no good. You try it again, it sucks even worse. You try it again, and they laugh a little, and now we're on to <laughs> something. You know, it's just, right, right. it's a very painful life. Uh, just, you know, there's so much bombing that you have to get through. Bombing would be the equivalent <laughs> of you sending those pages to your publisher and him saying, what the heck is this? You know, yeah, start over, yeah, write it again. Exactly. It's no good, yeah. No, they, uh, to be clear, I, think, I feel like I should give DMB Publishing their, uh, their props. Uh, they were very kind throughout the entire process. They just, they did a really good job in saying like, this section isn't really helpful. This section is not really helpful, but yeah, it is kind of like bombing, I guess. Right. Like nobody finds this section interesting. And then you reread it. Damn it. That isn't good. Yeah. I thought it was good. Right. And yeah. Then, and you have you gotta... to, yeah. Like remove your ego and, and let somebody else criticize your work. Like all of that stuff puts you as the writer in a, in a vulnerable state. See, that's why you got to have zero self-esteem and then you're just <laughs> fine, right? If somebody robbed you of your self-esteem at some point, that's a gift. You yeah. can just keep going now. But yeah, what's the, what's the phrase? Kill your darlings. That's, I mean, that's the big trick for great writing is just you cut more than the other guy. If the other guy isn't cutting it, it's kind of like, instead of it being a stiff drink, it's been really watered down. People right. like snappy, keeps going and everything. Yeah, it's a. I have never been on a poker podcast and discussed the writing process. This is fun. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I know I know some people are definitely itching to get to some strategy and stuff, but I wanted to talk to you about the, these things because to me, it's all interlinked. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the way your brain works makes you a better writer, a better coach, and ultimately a better poker player. So, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, but they did not rob me of my self-esteem. They just got my passport. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn. That sucks. Yeah. They got the passport, the coat. I'm still missing some of my things. But, yeah, all right. So let's uh, get into TPE. I mean, you are one of the most popular coaches on the website. Um, tell us what you've been working on and your approach to making videos. Well, I've been, uh, I've been working on this hand history review for a while. It's just a... Uh, I had three, four weeks, a bunch of stuff came up. It looks like everything's really calm right now. So I actually have a couple videos done that I did this week coming up. But something that's been really fun has been uh, analyzing this one TPE member's uh, hand history. And that's really fun because you familiarize yourself with what starting players are. are not, he's not really starting. Intermediate, getting to advanced players are thinking and you see, oh, okay, I could do this better or I could do that better. And it's a whole lot of nuts and bolts. Get My basics are very different than other people's basics. So 
I try to include them always. So what I usually do, it's not super convoluted, but it will help you out when you do training videos. The problem with most guys when they do training videos is they don't really go in there with a plan. So they have flashes of brilliance and then they kind of need to wait till the next hit. So it's kind of like good writing. You just want to hit the really powerful stuff. So something I'll do is I'll skim, uh, not really skim the hand history, but I'll skim my concepts that I think are likely to come up and I make a checklist, a pilot's checklist. You got to hit this at one point. You got to hit this at one point. You got to hit this at some point. And uh, yeah, that's what ends up happening is you try to put it into a conversational tone. The thing I like about the TPE videos is I get to make it more of a conversation. Uh, TPE is nice enough to let me do on what I really missed, which was like long form analysis. Like, let me watch you play 800 hands and I'll get, I'll tell you about your poker game. Let me tell you about your poker game. And, but the fun thing when you have the long form is you can keep slipping in the stuff that might be in a poker book, but people don't see it in a practical application. They don't see, oh, if I did this instead of that, that I would have been more prepared for this flop and I could have done this or, oh, he tabled that hand. But if I had done this, he likely would have folded that. So it's very much taking you onto the practice field and throwing you some pitches. That's I really like the hand history reviews. I did do one PowerPoint. Uh, that was really fun. And the stuff I got coming up, uh, we have a Euro tournament that a person wants me to review. And I thought that would be pretty fun because that's a, that is a whole other uh, can of worms. A what, uh, a what tournament? A Euro tournament. Like it, it was a tournament on a Euro site. Right? Oh, oh so, okay. So yeah, one of them, uh, one of them was on PokerStars. Uh, what, the other fun thing with TPE is I get to talk about the different player bases. So I used some of my final tables and said like, Hey, this is how I beat around Americans. You can try this in your local card room, thrashing bums for fun and profit. And <laughs> there's uh, then you can go to Europe and it's like, okay, uh, some of these people have seen a training course before. This is how you mess them up a little bit. And then on pokerservice.com, it's a, that's a very different animal because you have everyone from the local punter down the street in Ireland to guy in Canada chilling out watching hockey to Swedish cyborg to Estonian guy working med school hours to make a couple thousand a month uh, from, well, not from rake back anymore, but from just grinding it out. And all those guys play different. The grinded out pros, whenever you test them, they're going to fold. Uh, the Scandi countries where, you know, a beer is $20, they're probably not going to be doing much folding in a $33 tournament. Uh, if the guy's Peruvian, now you can get away with some other things because $33 to that person is a significant amount of someone's salary. And it's, and you don't, with, uh, with a lot of the hand history reviews, you want to get, to keep it to basics and essentials and stuff like that. But something I've been having fun with is uh, I'll stop in the middle of the hand and I'll go, if you're readless, you can do this. If you're in a tournament in Las Vegas, you can do this. 
And if the person is this kind of person in Europe, you can do this. And that's been really fun as a coach because you feel like you're preparing people for wherever they're going to play, whatever stakes they're at. That is really a joy. Well, as someone who spends a, a good amount of time in Sweden, I'm trying to find where these cheap $20 beers are. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad, right? I've heard it's terrible. I've actually, I've actually only ever been to Denmark, but that was enough. I heard Denmark was cheap, and then I ordered, like, fish one time at a local restaurant. I ordered a fish and a beer, and it was $89 or something. <laughs> uh, and I was just... I, I was thinking, well, I guess we're living off oatmeal for the next two weeks because I, I can't I, I, I can't afford this. Look, if two New Yorkers are saying a place is expensive, that place is expensive. <laughs> yeah, well said. Trust me on that one. Well, that's really interesting. I never really um, – I guess maybe I do on some level, but I never really broke it down in my mind of doing kind of the uh, foreign exchange on the how much this money might mean to my opponent. You know, the difference between a $33 buy-in to a player in Sweden is very different than someone if I look him up and he's in Peru or, or someplace like that. So that's kind of a nice little uh, – a way to kind of profile your opponents just based on what country they're in and what the dollar is worth there or the euro, whatever is worth in those places. That's interesting to me. Oh yeah. And if you want to take this to live poker, just every time, every time I see a guy show up late for a live tournament, I, I think missed opportunity. Uh, whenever I show up late for a live tournament, I want to punch myself because if you just show up 15 minutes early, and watch everybody slide their passport across, you are going to get to learn a lot about those people. You can even do this in the States. Uh, if someone shows their driver's license and they're from Arkansas, that's a much different deal than it's from California, right? Somebody from California has been around live poker a lot. It's very hard to make a – you, you're making decent money if you're living in San Diego or Sacramento or Los Angeles or San Francisco, Right. Versus the guy that slides across Arkansas, well, that's a little bit different, right? This guy's either, uh, th this guy either has money from independent industry that he's fine playing with, or he's really good at what he does playing cards. But it does give you some perspective. And when you're playing EPTs or the WPTs over there, you gotta look at the passports, right? Cause every, and you gotta get good at knowing what color means what. Right. If the guy's from London, he is not folding period ever. Right. He's just sharp and the pound sterling is so strong. Uh, he most likely doesn't care about this. Whereas, uh, you know, there's other countries in the eastern part of Europe where it is quite a substantial buy in if they made it there. So that kid's either a cyborg who pulled himself up by his bootstraps or he satellited in and he's crapping himself right now and that's the guy you can triple barrel right by the way guys if you're ever playing a live tournament don't ever ever let anyone know you satellite it in if they give you that sweatshirt that has satellite <laughs> winner or whatever do not open it because that is a big sign to me that says triple barrel you because here's the thing you traveled from canada you got to prague you told your girlfriend you were going to win this you got in the you got in the airplane, you flew 10 hours, you went through immigration, you checked into your hotel, you slept, you woke up, you had your coffee, you ate breakfast, you showed up for the tournament, 
You've been picturing this for weeks. You've told everybody back home. You've looked forward to this for two months. If someone triple barrels you in the first two hours, there is a really good chance you are going to fold, right? And you will see people show up and look at their tournament ticket and they'll hold it as if it's Willy Wonka's golden ticket, <laughs> right? And it's like, don't, and the coach in me is thinking, don't do that. But, you know, the player in me is like, well, okay, buddy, every time you open, it's on. Yeah, right? Whereas, that's information. Yeah. Right, exactly. Whereas if the kid shows up stoned and he's got the Cockney accent and he's got a hundred, well, he's got $20,000 on him that he's wanting to show people. That's not a guy who wants to back down. He's trying to show you how sick he is at this game, right? You're not going to get a lot of folds out of him. It's different. Yeah, it's all information. Well, you know, it's interesting because in the last few minutes, uh, you mentioned British players and uh, the hand that I wanted to uh, run past you it actually involves uh, an opponent from England. Nice. Uh, so do you mind if we jump into that now? Yes, sir. All right, great. So this hand comes from a tournament that I played as part of the uh, World Series of Poker last year, sometime around the end of June. Um, mm -hmm. I played in a 1K Super Turbo Bounty tournament, and it was a really fast structure. I mean, the blinds, yeah. were, I think they change every 15 minutes, and it, I think it was a one-day event. So uh -huh. it's a uh, $300 bounty on every player comes out of the 1k wow. uh, yeah so this tournament's really about collecting bounties i think because uh -huh. um, that's where uh, obviously like about a third of the prizes are coming right from that so uh -huh. i was doing pretty well they start with 5k um in the first level i had doubled up and i'm now at 11k um the my table's been really good the blinds are 75 and 150 um everybody at my table seems to be uh either inexperienced or uh in other words i'm not i'm not scared of anybody there's been a lot of action at my table like there have been pots where the pots got so big i was like well that guy must have the nuts and that other guy probably has second pair and then mm. it's showdown it's like one pair against <laughs> another one <laughs> pair so yeah it was like you know just i i find that's a big mistake that um players tend to make even in a super turbo bounty tournament you know type uh -huh. of tournament you don't want to just be getting it all in with one pair when you've got like 50 big blinds or something so um just to kind of set things up for you the only player that's really uh been a problem is this british guy two to my left of course he's on my left <laughs> uh his name is matthew moss you may even know him uh he's a pretty accomplished professional player he's got about a million in live caches um, in his career he's a young guy he's british and he seems to be trying to take advantage of the relative inexperience of most of our opponents i'm trying uh -huh. to put this in a delicate way <laughs> he's beating up on the fish okay <laughs> right, right. so um he opens under the gun plus one or as i like to call it second position because i'm old <laughs> and he's got 6,800, so he makes it 400 at 75,150, and everybody folds all the way back to me in the big blind, two to his right, and I'm holding the ace of spades, jack of clubs, and I have him covered, so we're playing his stack, 6,800 versus my 11,000. Um, you know, we're pretty deep. There's no antes yet. It's 75,150 with no ante. Um, 
I don't know. I will. I'll tell you. I don't want to tell you what I did yet. I want to hear your thoughts on whether I should call or raise. I don't think we want to fold Ace Jack here. No. Uh, well, first off, one thing about British players. The, this goes for I just want an overall thing to teach you guys. Wherever people can play on the Internet a lot, I want you to imagine someone who practices the piano 40 hours a week versus somebody who practices the piano two hours a week and ask yourself who's going to get better. The thing that's amazing about the United States is a lot of people do not want to play online poker anymore, so they play live, so they never get to play. And just like the person who doesn't practice the piano, they don't get as proficient. So I love the United States. I love playing poker in the United States because there's a lot of money and not a lot of skill. Whereas if you look at like Canada, the United Kingdom, places where they can play online poker, they're going to be a little bit more adept. So if there's ever a guy to avoid, it would be the young British guy that is still training 40 hours a week. Now, with that in mind, I'm, I want to explain my decision right here in our big blind. My typical thing versus any young guy is to three bet here because one, the average young guy can't fold a suited ace, uh, can't fold a king-queen offsuit. And I mean that on the open or flatting the three bet. When they are in position, most people live, their folding is exactly zero. If the guy has seven five of diamonds there, I don't know if the average reg is folding that anymore, especially if he perceives the rest of the table to be weak, as you stated. So if this guy's opening 7-5 suited, and I don't know if he's folding, I don't think a lot of these guys are, uh, you have a very clear 3-bet because what's going to happen is what he flats you with most of the time is going to be high cards. It's not going to be middle cards. It's not going to be low cards. People do not like to flat with 9-6. They like to flat with queen-9 suited, right? Uh, so if you see a board with two cards, 9 or higher, that tends to have hit the opponent. You can lay off of that. Uh, fortunately, you do have some coverage of that. Uh, so you could hit and most of the time just go with it if you made it 1100 and then see bet there. That would be how I tend to play against American regs who I think have a really bad problem with discipline as far as pre-flop raising uh, and also have a really bad problem just folding pairs period post-flop. So I, thought, I think you could three bet there for value versus American regs versus a guy who plays online most of the time. And it sounds like I don't know this guy from – I don't know much about this guy, but I'm just going to assume if Poker Stars is something he can sign up for, he probably is there a lot of the time. The people who play online poker like all the time, they start realizing you can't open 7-5 suited under the gun plus one. You can't do that all the time. Or they just – because there's so much information over there now, there there's so many guys – professing the GTO stuff and the GTO stuff is a little bit more careful on what you can open from earlier position. You can't make that assumption that he's opening that wide. Uh, you can't make that assumption that he's flatting that wide. This is also the only guy at the table from what you've told me we really are worried about. So what I would be focusing on at this table is minimizing the size of pots I play with this guy and every time someone to my right opens who I think is opening a little too much, I would be three-betting, freezing out this gentleman to my left because I know I'm not going to get opens through. He knows how to three-bet. But a lot of guys don't know how to cold four-bet. And to be fair to him, he has no way of knowing that you're isolating with a queen-nine suited or a jack-eight suited when you three-bet there. He's got to assume 
that you're three betting 5% of the hands because that's what most people do. They three bet their eights, nines, tens, jacks, queens, kings, aces, uh, ace, queen plus, and a couple of bluffs. So I would be three bet freezing this guy out, trying to play poker where this guy doesn't exist. And for that reason, I would be calling here because I don't want to play a big pot with this guy because I don't know he's opening too much. I don't think he's flatting too much. We can go ahead and play here. So I, now I assume you called because most people do call there. What would you do? I definitely thought about putting in a three bet. I mean, it occurred to nice. me okay. it occurred to me that, that it might be profitable to build a pot here. Um, and, and I didn't expect to get four bet bluffed a lot. Right. Um, I expected him to flat the three bet all the time. Um, as you said, I don't think people fold a lot and I don't think they four bet a lot. So oh, that's it, very uncommon to find, uh, when you research poker. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty uncommon. So I thought, uh, I, I definitely strongly considered putting in the three bet, but, uh, because, we have so many other spots at the table and because we're in such good shape um, chip wise. And, you know, I just didn't feel like playing a huge pot out of position against this guy. Um, Even though I don't think I'm going to make that many egregious post flop mistakes. uh, I just didn't feel like building the pot was correct when I had so many um, absolute amateurs at the table. So, can I can I check to see if you make an egregious post flop mistake? <laughs> can I, it, it, uh, the, like this is how my coaching goes. I'm gonna give you a hypothetical. You call here. The board comes ace ten two. You check. He bets. You call. The turn is a five. You check. He bets. What do you do? I, I think I have to call again, depending on how much he bets. But I I think I do need to call a lot because now my hand is basically a bluff catcher. Is well, that terrible? Well, the, the, the thing that you find is many guys won't fire the second barrel on an ace-high board. Because think about it. I want you to imagine you develop a flush draw on an ace-10-2-5 board, okay? But, uh, and let's say you got king-queen of diamonds. The turn gives you a flush draw. Most guys are not going to fire that turn because it's like, well, the guy check called me on the flop. He's probably got a lot of aces. So if he's not firing his flush draws, he's not firing a lot of bluffs. He's not firing his 10. So now here's the thing. You can call there, but you got to have a reason to do so. On that stack size, think about that stack size he opened from, 6.1K. So 400, so he C-bets, let's say 600 in the turn bet. You could maybe get away with it, right? But I see a lot of people call that turn, and then I get really worried because on the river nobody folds, period, because curiosity equity is a hell of a thing but (laughs) it's uh the other the board i specifically picked there ace ace 10 ace 2 ace 5 just out flopped you so the hands that you're beating right now is him buying the showdown with ace 9 ace 8 ace 7 which is a very rare play uh a double barrel bluff uh on an ace high board which you'll see eastern europeans do you'll see russians do you'll see some brazilians do i don't some brits do it but not a ton so that this is my only concern when people flat with aces is not that they call the turn actually calling turn is okay from the stacked up but the problem is when most people call the turn then they call the river and that's when you have a really big issue because now you're calling about 10x uh it's very unlikely the guy's triple barrel bluffing it's very difficult to find a guy who will triple barrel bluff on an a side board and then if you give away that 10 big blinds that's pretty much the ball game. Every time you three bet, 
Well, I mean, to give you perspective on how much that is, Kings on average makes about 4.55 big blinds if there's zero variance. So that's that's the equivalent. If you give away that 10x on the river, which most people will do because most people's fold on the river is like 20%. That's like getting Kings folding once, just preflop, you just fold, and then getting Kings again and just going, I really got to take a leak and folding again, right? It's It can be quite tremendous. So I, I do get worried when people just, call period because here's the thing if you three bet and take the initiative most people are not going to raise you with a bluff that is very difficult to find in any data the average raise on the flop is 10 percent in everything i've ever seen live or online the average check raise on the flop is 10 percent everything i've seen live or online and if you dig into that you highlight those hands 90 percent of them are two pair or better most people will raise their two pair or better call with their pairs and fold their high cards. So, sorry, as you can see, I think way too much about a poker hand, but there's, so you call preflop, and then what happens? Yeah, so, um, no, I love what you just did, because I think that's what we should all be doing, is planning ahead, like chess players, well, if he does this, what am I going to do? And if that happens, right. how do I react? And no, I think this is great, and I mean, I think the I think the listeners appreciate the fact that I didn't even tell you the flop yet, and you're already kind of planning what we would do. Um, yeah, now just because I said that uh, I felt like I won't make any egregious post-flop mistakes doesn't mean that I didn't make any egregious post-flop mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But yeah. thankfully, um, the flop is not ace high. It actually comes king of diamonds, jack of diamonds, seven of spades, and we have the ace jack with the ace of spades, jack of clubs. So we flopped a middle pair here. Um, now, my general approach to playing against aggressive, talented, accomplished, professional players who have position on me, I feel like in my career I've made a lot of money checking and calling mm -hmm. against those kind of players. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really think that on this flop I'm going to have any uh, donk leading range. In other words, I, I think if I'm calling, I'm pretty much... Right. Forget pretty much. I'm always checking this flop against a player like this. Against other players, I might have a leading range. Right, right. It, well, definitely versus a very passive opponent, you could lead, but you gotta, uh, you gotta lead three streets typically because if you lead flop, lead turn, check river, you just told the guy I have a pair or a misdraw, and unsurprisingly, most people play pretty damn well when they know what you have. And a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people subconsciously. Even if they couldn't articulate that, they subconsciously get that because that's one of the most common situations in poker is a guy bets and a guy gives up. But, yeah, you definitely could have a donk lead there. I, I would structure that with a very small donk lead on the flop because, again, most people don't. If it is a passive opponent, you could go small donk lead, half pot, half pot, and you'll get paid off by queen, jack, jack, ten, jack, nine. Um, again, if the person is very weak and opening a lot, that I obviously this isn't the situation here. So I agree with you. It's probably better to check. Cool. So I do check, and uh -huh. uh, he bets 650 into 875, which is a big bet, and it's even bigger when I recall that in an earlier pot, he had down bet the flop. Like maybe he had raised to 400 and then bet like 350 on another flop, and in that hand, he ended up showing down a bluff. So... Uh, this bet is bigger. Now, I don't know if he's... Hold on. Uh, I, I'm trying to... 
Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm worried he's structuring uh, like a he's structuring a big pot. There's a lot of guys, especially in Europe, that uh, they're really big on the big bets. But because okay, let's say he was trying to get you to fold out your ace highs. Uh, if he was trying to get you to fold out your high card, high cards, a smaller bet could work there. Uh, the, the good thing about his 650 bet is like, well, if you got sevens, but I don't think he's expecting you to fold that. So I really, I feel like he's structuring something here, which has me worried. But yeah, okay. So what do you end up doing? Yeah, so I end up not liking my situation at all because I feel like because he had down bet with a bluff earlier. And now he's betting, you know, a good chunk of the pot, like three quarters of the pot, basically. Uh-huh. Um, I felt uncomfortable with my situation. I felt like if I fold, I'm folding the best hand too much, which isn't the, the worst mistake you can make. And I felt like if I call, I'm just getting owned a lot, and I don't. I think that's worse. Uh, I wanted to fold, but I called, <laughs> so that's what I did. Okay. 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 So uh, I'm just uh, I'm look. Okay. Let me see if I got the board right. King of diamonds, jack of diamonds, two of clubs. No. Or what was the blank? The blank is a seven of spades. Seven of spades. Okay. And we have uh, we have ace of spades, jack of clubs. Correct. Okay. Okay. So okay. Continue. Yeah. So uh, whereas pre-flop I wanted to three bet and just called. Now on the flop I wanted to fold and called. So <laughs> so far I've already done two things that I didn't really want to do. In uh, this I hand. like how you're playing this hand. I, I think your gut's telling you something that you can't articulate. It's I think you're fine so far. So what happens on the turn? Okay, so that's good to hear. Um, on the turn the pot is twenty one seventy five and the deuce of clubs hits. So now the board is king jack seven deuce with two diamonds. And I check again, and my opponent bets 1500 into 2175 so roughly three-quarters of the pot again. Okay. So he bets – okay, so he bets three-quarters of the pot. Mm-hmm. So, okay, hold on a second. I'm doing my math on my hands and toes because I can't go up that high thinking. Hold on a second. So you're calling – Okay, so what do you need? Like 30% equity there? 75%? Yeah, okay, so so he's betting 75% of the pot. If he is, uh, yeah, so, okay, so if he was betting 75 into 100, we would be calling 75 to win 250. So, yeah, it's, it, it's 0.3. So, if I got that right. So, a- anyway, you're, uh, okay, so you check, he bets, Here's the thing. How sure are you he's betting queen 10? I don't really know how sure I can be because we're actually only about 40 minutes into this tournament. Um, he has been, uh, you know, a very – he's been the most active player at the table. Had he not been at this table, I would have been the most active player. But I've kind of shut myself down, especially when he's the first aggressor. In a hand, like I say, I tend to be more passive to exploit other people's over aggressive behaviors. Right, so, right. Um, but, yeah. But here's the here's the problem you're running into. Uh, let's say, what are the chances he's betting a six of hearts on this turn? 
Yeah, a six of hearts. I don't think he's betting on this turn. So, so he's got to have some semblance of something. So let's say he's got to have some semblance of something. Now let here's my, here was the problem I had for years when I tried to imagine poker hands. I'd say he's got a lot of flush draws on this board. Here's the problem. Okay, let's give him every flush draw we can. Ace queen of diamonds. Ace ten of diamonds. Ace nine of diamonds. Ace eight of diamonds. Ace seven of diamonds. Ace six of diamonds. Ace five of diamonds. Ace four of diamonds. Ace three of diamonds. Ace two of diamonds. That. That is nine combinations. You know what? It also is nine combinations is ace-king. So one top pair accounts for all the co- – is the same number of combinations as all the flush draws. And I haven't even counted king-queen suited, king-jack suited, king-ten suited, jack-jack, uh, that's a combo, king-king, that's three combos, ace-ace, that's uh, three combos. If we include king-queen – uh, offsuit, which I don't know if he's opening there. That's going to uh, that's going to be another nine combos. So essentially, what I worry about here is you're you're going to have. If I'm looking at this right, if uh, I, I'm playing around with my Flopzilla here, by the way, I'm not doing that in my head, by the way, guys. But my brain doesn't work that fast. <laughs> but uh, it's a. Uh, it, I mean, this is stuff you should do when you have the free time, right? But it, the big deal to have, whenever you're hero calling, you should there should be a lot of draws out there, right? There was one time, I, okay, brag post, but I called an all-in with King High on in a WCP 2K, and I was right, on the river. Now, here's the thing. There were six, count them, six missed draws on the board between all the straight draws and flush draws. And I knew for a fact, uh, I th- if this, if I have this right, this was the guy who had the tattoos, God forgives, I don't. So this was a guy who was uh, shoving every single missed flush draw, right? <laughs> and it just so happens when there's that many missed flush draws, there's a whole lot of air, right? And uh, uh, I got lucky. He totally could have been bluffing with like fourth pair and I would, he would have looked like a genius. And then I was walking my ass out of there. Right. But here's the thing. When there's two draws, right. First of all, every flush draw you can imagine. So ace, deuce of diamonds, that is one combo. Ace, three of diamonds, that is one combo. If you cannot give him a ton of flush draws, there's not that many combos. So if he calls out of the big blind, he's calling with anything halfway suited. That's a lot of combos. If he raises from the two position, as you put it, that's uh, that tends to not be that many combos, especially if he's a disciplined Euro player, right? So that's going to just be the suited aces. So that's not that many combos. And then the other thing is we know he's betting his top pairs. We know he's probably betting his over pairs. We know he's betting his two pairs, his sets, etc. But we're not positive he's firing all those open-ended straight draws. And if you take out those open-ended straight draws out there and leave in the flush draws, you're going to have about 24% equity. And you needed more than that to call there. And let's say, okay, let's throw in the open-ended straight draws and let's subtract the king-queen offsuit. Now, let's say you have 35% equity and you need 30 or whatever it is, right? Well, that you have to now realize that equity. So you now have to realize that equity, see if I did this right, about 85% of the time, right? You And there's still a river to play. And uh, forgive me for saying this, I don't think we have any plan for the river, right? Like we don't know what cards are good for us. We don't know what cards are. Uh, and I think with a player like this, 
a really good question to ask yourself whenever you're playing. And I ask this question all the time, which is when you're on very thin ice, uh, you have a pair and you're calling down. The question you got to ask yourself is one, do I want him to check on the turn Two, what percentage of the time is that going to happen? Now they, they did all these studies where, uh, there's this book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and essentially the big takeaway is that people are systematically irrational. There was a guy who refuted that book, and he found people are actually pretty rational when they assign numbers to things. So the thing is you have to assign a number in order to make your brain rational. So how often do we think he's firing that river? What percentage of the time would you say? Well, I think he's probably firing the river about 30% of the time. Yeah, at least 30. So that's a third of the time we have no idea what to do, right? Well, and we we were on pretty thin ice already. True, but so, let me just give you a little insight to what I was thinking, and then you can tell me, uh, you know, what's wrong with my logic. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I don't expect him to fire the river with one pair uh, very okay. much. So okay. I think when he fires the river, Fair enough. you know, suppose he has king-queen or ace-king. I think most players... They've gotten plenty of value for their one pair hand, and right. just in case uh, I'm slow playing something, they usually give up or maybe bet really small to try to squeak a little more value. But I think most players, like they see like an ace king type hand or even pocket aces here, whether it's right or wrong, I think most players see those hands as a two streets of value situation, right, right. and especially if these are value bets, these are large bets he's made. So I don't expect him to fire. So I think part of the 30% is monsters or at least two pair. And mm-hmm. then all the missed draws, all the queen tens, all the ace queens. Okay. He decided to fire again, whatever. When he has the ace of diamonds with his ace queen, I think he might make this bet again. So I think that a lot of the 30% is a bluff. And therefore, my plan is basically uh, to check and call again mm-hmm. on the river. Uh, most of the time when he when he bets there so i don't know i guess uh no there's nothing wrong with what you just said that's actually that's a very elaborate pick off that's a very uh that's a very nuanced bluff catch and the reason that is is okay so we have him checking all top pairs uh on the river so that means two pair are better are let me see uh yeah, so he's if he's firing all of his misdraws and he's firing two pair or better, you're, he's just going to have nothing 56% of the time. And coincidentally, that's your hand's equity on the river because you obviously don't beat any of his value combinations, uh, which 56% equity is a boatload of equity. You can call any bet as long as it's not substantial. Uh, here's, here's my problem with that, Clayton. Here's, here's the thing. You always want to count the number of assumptions you're making because if one of these is wrong, we have a huge problem. Number, the first assumption we're making on this turn, he is betting every single open-ended straight draw. The second assumption we're making on this turn, he is betting every single flush draw. The third assumption we're going to be making on the river, he never value bets top pair. If we throw in the ace-king, that really skews things off. And there are guys that will fire that three times. And if this guy is a successful dude, he's got to know you're pretty cap bear. He's got to know, well, this guy called out of the big blind. Everybody calls with everything out of the big blind. He might just have himself a jack eight. And by the way, I was 
doing all these numbers off of a complete river block, uh, uh, excuse me, a complete river brick, uh, which is, you know, just a, another two, an offsuit two, let's say. Right, right. right. That, that this doesn't account for all the, we're also making the assumption the, the river bricks. There's a lot of diamonds. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, let's count the cards that are bad for us. Uh, the ace of diamonds, the queen of diamonds, the ten of diamonds, the nine of diamonds, the eight of diamonds, the seven of diamonds, the six of diamonds, the five of diamonds, the four of diamonds, the three of diamonds, uh, the two of diamonds, the nine of clubs, the nine of hearts, the nine of spades. Uh, I guess ace of hearts, ace of clubs, ace of spades. Well, obviously not the ace of spades. We have that in our hand. A lot of hands fill. I think I just counted 15 cards there. So a third, whatever it was, it's coming a third of the time. And by the way, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying you're doing – if you're right on all of these things, it is a very exciting play. It is very fun to watch. As a fan of poker, I am always in awe when people do a pickoff, a, a bluff catch like that. My my problem is when I'm coaching here, – here's the thing. If you want to find how people bust their tournaments, it I thought it would be a pretty good idea one day to – find everybody busting their tournament and see what it was. It was always one pair out of position, not really sure what was going on because it's just like all of investing. Like, would you want to invite, invest in a ice cream shop in a Long Island city? Well, probably not because you don't know anything about Long Island city real estate or an ice cream shop. Now here's my problem here. I don't know if he's checking back ace king. I don't know if he's firing queen 10. I don't. So the real, I guess like the working class poker thing is just a, the majority of the time, the turn bet is going to be mostly value, right? So you got to kind of suck it up and give it up there. Uh, but if you're trying to be the best poker player in the world, that's obviously not a great solution, which is, you are going to have to figure out, does this guy value bet ace-king? Does this guy double barrel all of his queen tens? Then this goes into verbal cues and stuff like that. Did he do any ostentatious behaviors doing a hand? Is he kind of slamming the chips out there? Is he staring at your stack? Is he Because people tend to quiet their body language when they have a really big hand. Was he doing anything like that? No, and I'm uh, definitely the one who observes my opponents very carefully. I mean, I, I'm mostly a live player. I do have some online experience, but, you know, I do feel like a big strength of my game is my powers of observation. And there was nothing uh, that really stood out to me that he was trying to quiet his body or that he was, you know, yeah. somehow excited that he had, you know, flopped a set of kings or, or anything like that. Um, I do agree that my... Uh, call on the turn is a pretty ambitious tightrope walk and oh. I wasn't really sure uh, what to do on that turn I felt like I should uh, I felt like I, I wanted to fold but I also wanted to call and unfortunately in poker you have to pick one <laughs> <laughs> right right they don't they don't let you you can't just do both yeah yeah right, yeah right. um but yeah but my plan for the for calling on the river obviously is only the bricks i'm not going to be able to call if it's right, a diamond right. or any of those cards that you mentioned that are going to hit his hand but i'm thinking um that he's going to shove or you know make another large bet at least on 
on uh, on the bricks 30% of the time. Well, here's the thing I'm thinking, Clayton. Uh, you work as a stand-up comic. Uh, th- there are certain people that do a lot better in live poker than people realize, and I notice there's a commonality between them. I, musicians, taxi drivers, bartenders, people in working-class jobs, because, and also immigrants, people that had to work with body language for the first 10 years they were in a country because they didn't understand every third, second, fourth word in a conversation. Those people tend to pick up body language very well. Now, if this is kind of the art of live poker, I'll give you my short answer when I'm teaching because I don't think most people have that, which is, look, the way to win at this table is to three bet Every guy who's opening too much frees this guy out from pots in the future and just give him this one. Most people don't have much of a double barrel bluffing game. I would just leave it to this one. That assumes no reads. That assumes no particular uh, game, right? If you your job is reading a room for a living, that is your job. It is very possible we're intellectualizing something you felt in your gut which is, this is a draw, I know it's a draw, I think it's a draw, that's why my hand will not muck this hand. In which case, yeah, you have a call there. The, what I would do if I were you is I would keep a ledger of every time you did something you thought was a feel-based play. Now, if you find your accuracy on those is like 80%, 90% or higher, you have a tremendous gift that many poker players, including myself, do not have. I right. do that, so, actually. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Alex, but I, I oh, wanted to tell you, I actually do that. Um, I log every hand that I play that where I feel like I go away from theory because of a read. And oh, I, do, I do analyze uh, how, how many of those hands I'm right on. And my average is right around 62%. So it's not okay. the 85 or 90 or whatever. But uh, when I go off the script because of a sense of somebody, um, I'm typically right about 62 percent of the time i'm right uh, i would i need to be clear though in this case i wasn't getting a sense that he was that strong but i also wasn't all that sure that he had a draw it's not like my read told me he had a draw it's just i was looking for some sign that he had a monster and i didn't see okay. that yeah so it's different than saying oh i feel that he's weak and my right, reads are right. telling me he's weak. It's just that my reads were not telling me he was particularly strong. And so that's what made it a difficult situation. I think that all things considered, this turn is a fold. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I did call. And I okay, had my reasons, so, but I'm not crazy about the call at this point. Okay, so I think uh, I think the way you could do this better in the future and maybe bring that 62 up to 70 or 80 the thing I notice is when I ventured away from what the script tells me to do, it was very much in my gut. Uh, I, this sounds so new earthy or whatever, but <laughs> there's so many. If you're ever convincing yourself to do it, I find that's usually when you're putting yourself on, right? That's the. But there's sometimes like it just punches you in the face where it's like you can't fold to this guy. And so I think what you're telling me is you didn't feel the punch. Sometimes you feel the punch. This time it wasn't the punch. It was the, damn it, I don't want to fold, right? So, uh, okay, so we call on this turn. What happens yeah. on the river? 
Yeah, I'll move on. But I, it was more. It wasn't so much like, damn it, I don't want to fold. It was more like, damn it, I wish he would give me <laughs> something that would let me fold, and and he, right. I didn't oh, okay. pick it up. Yeah, oh. yeah. I was trying to find the fold, and he oh. didn't. He didn't help me, which most of the time players do help me when uh-huh. I'm leaning that direction. So I called, and you know, like I say, at this point, looking back on the hand and analyzing it after the fact, I think that's a fold. If I'm not more sure that he's got uh-huh. the, the bluffs there. So anyway, now I call and we have this 5175 pot and the river's the eight of hearts. Not exactly the brick we talked about, but it's also not a huge card. I guess the 10-9 got there. Uh-huh. Um, that's the only draw that really came in unless you count 8-7. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, I check again and my opponent shoves for his remaining 4,400 into 5,175. And if I call and win the pot, I get a $300 bounty. Let's not forget. Oh, yeah. Um, of course, if I call and lose the pot, I don't get that bounty. <laughs> so, right. so it's a really big bet, 4,400 into 5,175. And again, in my experience playing thousand dollar tournaments at the world series of poker and elsewhere this doesn't feel like a one pair hand like uh-huh. he's played this hand very strongly for it being one pair so to me i feel like i'm trying to decide whether he's got a monster or by which i mean at least two pair and it's kind of hard for him to have two pair when i have a jack not impossible of course but i do block some of those two pairs and then you know the sets like i don't block king king uh-huh. right and i don't block seven seven uh-huh. uh so th- to me that's what i'm up against i feel like i'm i'm kind of uh subtracting one pair hands including pocket aces from my opponent's range just because you don't typically see i mean c- can you tell me do you see players play aces this way or ace king this way yeah, there's a if, if a guy's got a real kill shot, like yeah. there's there are guys that I think the way you can identify the extremely successful pros versus the average to good to meddling pros is you just see that hunger to get that last bet, and a lot of those guys just can't help themselves on the river if they think you're capped at like a king ten or an ace jack there or something, that ace king is going in. They got and they know you're tempted to call with that bounty. I definitely think, and that kind of throws things off, because if you can throw in some top pairs there, your equity is going to go into you being right about a quarter of the time, whereas I think right now you're right about 40, 50% of the time. I'm not playing with my Flopzilla anymore, so I'm just guess. let me yeah. play with it a bit. I think I don't have it perfect, but yeah, it looks like 40. Yeah. Um, so, well, I mean, the first thing you should do, uh, well, <laughs> Uh, ask him if he's ever seen a baby pigeon. <laughs> like that. I'm serious. Like, look dead in his eye and very seriously go, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? Because <laughs> the, the, when a guy's not bluffing, a lot of times you'll get a, what the hell did you just say? And then sometimes the guy just freezes up and that's tension, right? Now, you know, it, there's, there's a hundred of these. That one is from Brad Booth. Uh, Brad Booth used to ask that to people because people would just kind of laugh and go, what the hell are you talking about? And they would kind of give off, hey, I'm calm, right? 
And we didn't do the work before this, but a, a really good thing to pay attention to when you play live poker is people's baseline comfort. Some guys get really nervous with a hand uh, because they're excited. Uh, there's other guys that uh, I'll give you one. I, I got, I got lucky enough to be right with a, a hand just like this. I called three streets down, which I don't do normally with second pair, uh, in WPT Montreal and I caught the kid with Jack high. But the reason I did that is I saw the kid with an overpair earlier and he looked bored out of his mind and, uh, the, the kid spoke French, so I couldn't talk to him, but he, uh, he looked very nervous, that hand. And, uh, you know, I tried smiling at him to see if he'd smile back. He did try to smile a little bit. It looked a little forced. I went, all right, buddy, if you got me, you got me. And he had Jack High. And uh, I think Mike Leah used to always ask, did the flush draw come in or something like that? Uh, uh, go Leafs, go A. Was, I've seen him do that live, sure. like, really well. I've seen him talk, get people talking. His Him and, like, Negreanu, it's much more – it's much more within the context of the game. I think you should just say the most off the wall thing you can think of. Like, have you ever visited South Korea? What if God was one of us? Do you find Michelle Obama attractive, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera. That, and, uh, the, and if you get like a very, like, what the hell did you just say reaction? That's one of two things. That's a pro who's very calm, uh, while he's bluffing, which does exist. I had one of those guys at the WCP main event last year. Kid just totally worked me. Uh, I got him talking. He, I, I haven't seen a guy that comfortable in a big bluff in a long time. And he got me and he showed me the bluff and I was like, you got, you got it. You won. But most of the time you could suss out the fun part about live poker is we got, you still can look at the guy, right? <laughs> you don't lose anything taking a second and looking at the guy, right? Uh, as far as what you should do, I, my full belief is we should have been out on the turn. If this were me, I'm out on the turn. I absent a read. I'm going to assume a good Euro player has a kill shot with ace king here, aces. And in which case I really can't be calling. And by the way, I don't want this to sound like a noble thing. This is me giving up. This is just me. Poker tournaments are a series of investment decisions, and I fully admit there are some I have no idea what the hell is going on. Uh, I I wish I was better. I'm not. But the way you make money is you avoid those situations early and often, and when you do find a favorable situation, you freeze people out. You get it heads up, position bigger pot superior hands heads up yourself versus the weaker players at the table. I do not like how we inflated this pot. The, not inflated this pot, but I. if we call on this river, you better have a damn good reason to do so. And I don't know if we have that, do we? Yeah, exactly. We don't have that. And again, I don't like the call on the turn either. I feel like that's a mistake that leads us to another potential um, huge mistake I mean, here. I mean, it's not, it's not bad. Like a lot of guys will double barrel – bluff but they don't really have a triple barrel so like you can call turn and fold river the uh the problem i worry about is we get to that river and it's like god we're just as poker players we're so close to that cocaine drip you know what i mean like <laughs> catching a guy in a bluff is like the closest you'll ever get to an orgasm in live poker right <laughs> you know true. just like yeah here's the second pair buddy 
hey, I made the chips, right? So the problem is that temptation is so there. And the great thing about live poker, let's say you're wrong. Let's say the guy shows three kings. You can just go ace king, good hand, and fold, right? right Nobody right, has. Right. Oh wait, no, this is an all in. He gets to see your hand. I never mind. I'm full of it. But yeah, anyway, if this were cash, that would be uh, that would be a thing. But yeah, so what do we end up doing? I'm curious now. Yeah, so uh, we don't, we don't end up uh, we don't end up with getting anything off of him. Like I did talk to him a little bit. I tried to ask him. I tried to get a sense of how strong he was. So basically the only evidence I have as to whether this guy is strong or weak is his bet sizing. And I mentioned earlier that in a previous hand he had bet small when he was bluffing. And if you don't have any other reads, you can usually go with the bet sizing. And uh, in the moment, I didn't. I don't know if I got intoxicated by the thrill of calling off a bluff. Oh, I, don't, no. I don't know if I got, uh, you know, excited about winning another bounty. I'd already collected one earlier, um, but I did call, and my opponent had Ace King. Ooh, well done. And that God. was the kill shot. And I just, you know, I made a lot of mistakes in this hand. I don't like the way I played the turn, and obviously not happy about the river either. Um, I think that this hand tells me a lot about uh you know what i need to avoid this summer when i go out there i don't need to go up against the other good player at the table and try to prove that i can call him down all the way with second pair especially because some of these guys have as you called it that kill shot so right right and i mean i mean to be fair to you also i think what happened is one of the things i'm most critical about when it comes to american regs is they have no triple barrel for value uh, they just they don't want it. it. It is something not to get on a rant, but if most of your value hands in non-limit hold'em are going to be pairs, 10% or more of the time you're going to flop two pair or better. And like, yeah, anybody can play that. A five-year-old can play those hands. Just keep betting, right? 30% or 20, 25% of the time you're going to flop a pair, and the rest of the time, or 30% of the time you're going to flop a pair, and the rest of the time you're going to have nothing. How you play those pairs is going to determine whether you are a successful poker pro, a mediocre pro, poker pro, or just another guy quitting after four years. And there are a lot of American regs who the first thing they think when they flop a pair is, how can I keep this pot small? If what you're going to do with 75% of your value hands is think about how can I make the least money, you are going to lose. And there are a lot of American regs that – are peddling this pot control strategy are they're super worried about firing that river in which case i think you would have a very valid point there which is i've even seen guys check a set there right but like <laughs> it's very easy to i've seen ridiculous hands get checked there and me it's too. one of the hard, it's one of the hardest things for me coaching is yeah a lot of the americans will check back the aces on that river because oh i don't know this pot's big enough or something like that but that's a very specialized read. And I think it's really funny because we were talking about in my TPE videos versus a guy from this country, you should do this versus a guy from this country, you should do that. And this buy-in level, do that. Live, you should do that. Online, you should do that. In this hand, I think you had a damn good point versus an American. I think you took that and applied it to a Brett who likely has learned if he wants to 
pay for his supper, he's going to have to learn to triple barrel for value. That is one of the things, if you are around a long time, you're going to have to develop that. And this is a very clear situation to triple barrel us aces, uh, ace king, because you called out of the big blind, you could have, uh, you could have king five of clubs right here. And you might not be folding on the river because, hey, there's a missed straight drop and a flush drop. That's a couple things I could pick off. But the American guy will say like, oh, you know, he could add king eight, he could add king seven. It was big enough or whatever. And that that to me is it's disappointing because when you ha you most likely have the best of it and you try to make those pots the biggest. It's a very simple way to make a lot of money and no limit hold them. And it doesn't take a road scholar. But, yeah, I think you just took an American centric strategy and you applied it to a guy that that might not apply to well really good stuff alex um i i agree with everything you said and uh this is a hand that has haunted me i played a ton of poker last summer i think i played 26 or 27 tournaments last summer um mm. and uh this is one that haunted me even though i ended up you know getting all those chips back and whatever you know, it doesn't matter what happened next uh it's just this is a hand that i i didn't feel good about and lately on the podcast i have been talking about a lot of hands that i've played very well so i just wanted to bring up one where i got owned and, uh, and <laughs> see how bad it was <laughs> right right well and i mean the other thing bring up kobe kobe didn't hit every shot man right but he, but he sure shot you know what i mean it's one of those things you learn from it everything mm -hmm. i am teaching you has uh, i have made every mistake in the book in poker 10 or 20 times just to make sure I really got it right I have called off there I cannot tell you how many times and it wasn't until the 20th time I didn't catch him I realized he's never bluffing here yeah. damn it right or you know you catch him one time out of 20 and you're like I'm a genius and then right. you look at it's so cool you keep a ledger because yeah I used to keep a ledger and I was nowhere near 62 percent I'll tell you that and yeah. once I found that I started making a real nuts and bolts poker strategy that helped me a lot. And that's, I still teach from that playbook. It's really effective, but yeah, you, you went for the gold. It didn't work this time. Well, my father told me once that my father, uh, my mother was a, a serious poker player, but my dad was not, uh, he liked to actually gamble. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he told me once that sometimes when he's playing roulette, he just knows the next, Spin is going to be a zero or a red or whatever. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, Dad, you might be right. Let's test it, okay? We'll go play some roulette. And every time you're sure something's going to happen, you tell me before the ball lands. And if you're right more than half the time, I'll never I'll never bug you about this again. <laughs> now, how do, you, how do you take that? Uh, he said, okay, let's do it. I'm going to prove that I'm psychic. And then he lost like five in a row. And he's like, maybe you're on to something, Clayton. <laughs> oh, my God. See, this is another case. This is why when everybody says you got to be an optimist in life, uh, be, optimism will cover all, will fix everything. An optimist is a guy who gets 20 in blackjack and says, hit me. That's another case where non-existent <laughs> non self-esteem has its rewards. I highly recommend it for everybody. Absolutely. Well, uh, Alex, uh, before we wrap up, just let some let everybody know uh, how they can find you. Uh, this has been an unbelievable uh, discussion for me. You know, I've I've listened to you on other shows. My first time actually getting to talk with you on the podcast. And I, first of all, thank you for coming on and thank you for sharing your. Uh, 
your wisdom with me and let, let everybody know how they can find you. Yeah, if you guys want to get in touch with me, my Twitter is at the assassinato. Uh, you can go to my ancient blog, which looks like fried dog turds, but uh, <laughs> and the, uh, pokerheadrush.com. And in the top right, you can sign up for my newsletter if you just want to see any. I send out my new articles and stuff like that, all the free stuff on the Internet. That's where I kind of put it put it together. Or like this podcast will be going out to that newsletter just so people can see it. Uh, and yeah, you can just write me at alex at pokerheadrush.com if you want to say hi, and I'll be sure to say hi back. Thank you for tuning into this. There you go, alex at pokerheadrush.com. So uh, for Alex Fitzgerald, for Dr. Richard Feynman, for Matt Scott, <laughs> for Daniel Negranu, for uh, Danny, and for Derek, and everybody else at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you guys for listening. Love it, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun Oh, wow